Well, happy Easter, y'all. Christ is risen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I hear a lot of people say, and I think this is kind of the politically correct thing, and I've uh, been guilty of saying this myself at times, where I say that I am a spiritual person, but I'm not religious, right? And I think what people are really trying to say is that while we may believe that there is some sort of God who is out there somewhere, they really don't want to affiliate with any type of organized religion because they want to be free to believe what they want to believe without having somebody else's beliefs forced down upon them, right? But, and, and you know, I would guess that there's a lot of people in this room that would subscribe to that belief. But the question that I would have and the challenge that I would have is, what is your source of truth? What is it that your beliefs are based upon? My fear is that there are a whole lot of us who dilute our faith to the point that we're not even able to discern that our faith is really the Christian faith. We take a little bit of what we learned in Sunday school, a little bit from what we read in the Bible, a little bit what we heard from our our parents say through the years, and a little bit of just some stuff we made up in our heads, right? We mix it all together and we go, this is my faith. And we can even get so attached to our ideas that, you know, we will rigorously defend them even though we know deep down that they're not based on any kind of real source of truth other than what we believe in our gut to be true. And so we've been going through this series called An Overview of the Bible. And really what we've been trying to do is to ferret out all those things that kind of dilute our faith. And I have to tell you that there's been a couple things that I've learned in this series that I thought were true, that when I went back and looked, it's not in the Bible. Like, it's a church tradition that you hear through the years growing up, and it just isn't true. And so what we've really been trying to do is to try to put together uh, what we're calling a systematic theology or a belief system that is consistent with what the Bible teaches. Because if, our, if the Bible is going to be our source of truth, that it's important then that it's consistent with the Bible and that the Christian faith then is something you buy into. So I respect wherever anybody lands. Like if you land at the end of the series and you're an atheist, I have great respect for where you land. It's just that I hope that you've thought it through in a systematic, complete, critical way so that you understand what the consequences are of your beliefs and what your beliefs are based on. And so today, today is one of the most critical and admittedly difficult of all the core Christian beliefs. And so if you had trouble with believing in the creation of the world and the creation of man, if you had trouble believing in uh, knowing the ark, you know, which I admittedly talked about, if you had trouble believing that the, the sea parted and the Israelites were able to walk across on dry land, if you, if you had difficulty believing that today, it's really tough for you. Because today is the one that is the most difficult and the most difficult to conceive of, and that is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. What do you believe about that? Do you really believe in your heart that he is alive today? And your belief in whether or not that is true 
It's so big that it changes your entire worldview. Your worldview determines how it is that you approach life and what you want to accomplish and how dedicated you are to your church or to your family or your work ethic. Even who you marry is determined by your worldview. And what we believe changes the way we envision the outcome of our lives. And the one belief that shapes the Christian worldview more than any other is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For if you can believe that Jesus was able to raise from the dead, that, more than anything else, shapes and defines how it is we then live. Because if we can find the faith to believe that Jesus really did conquer death, then anything is possible, right? Even even a life that goes beyond the realms of this world is possible. That there is something more that goes beyond just the daily grind of doing this day in and day out monotony. That there is a life that lies beyond this world. That when we walk from this world and into the next, it will be a life that goes way beyond our wildest imagination. All right, you feeling like it's Easter yet? So um, through the years, there have been a lot of people who have tried to explain away and discredit the truth uh, about the resurrection of Jesus Christ in an effort to convince everyone that it's just not true, that it's made up. And yet, the Christian faith has continued to flourish and remains the largest religion in the world. Somehow, some way, the belief that Jesus rose from the dead has stood the test of time now for more than 2,000 years. I thought it might be interesting this morning to look at the uh, resurrection story from a different uh, perspective than we normally would on an Easter Sunday morning, and and um, to look at it from the perspective of those first few moments after Jesus's body was discovered missing, and the few groups of people who had a vested interest in making sure that the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ would never see the light of the day, that they did everything they could to squash that story before it ever got out. So we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 27 and 28 this morning. And um, this is right after Jesus died. And in verse 59 of 27, it says, So Joseph of Arimathea took the body, took Jesus' body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. The next day, The chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. And this deception would be worse than the first. So the chief priests, who are also known as the Sadducees, And the Pharisees, they're nervous, right? They're afraid that somebody's going to come in, steal the body of Jesus, and now everybody's going to believe in this crazy prophecy that Jesus raised from the dead on the third day. 
Now you also may remember from a few weeks ago that the religious leaders of that day, they enjoyed the little bit of power, uh, perceived power and wealth that the Romans gave them, but ultimately they were still accountable and had to answer to the Romans. And so they go back to the Roman governor, Pilate, who's the Roman uh, ruler of their particular area of Palestine. This is the same Pilate that had Jesus put to death. They go right back to Pilate. Um, and notice they call him what? They call him Sir, which I am sure for these proud men who hate the Romans, it just got their goat that they had to go in and kowtow to this man. But they were playing politics at this point because they wanted to get what they wanted. Right? So they say, Sir, this would be bad for all of us if the body of Jesus were stolen. I mean, can you imagine that if everybody who believes in Jesus, and by the way, notice they don't refer to Jesus by name while they call Pilate, sir, they refer to Jesus as what? The deceiver. And if everybody believes this crazy guy, this crazy prophecy of his raised from the dead, if that happens, then we've all got problems. Because there's going to be this great uprising that's going to occur because we had him put to death. We all have his blood on our hands. And so let's help each other out here and make sure that this doesn't happen. And so Pilate obviously understands the severity of the situation and agrees with them. And so in verse 65, he says, okay, take a guard, go and make the tomb as secure as you know how. And so they went, they made a tomb that was, they made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. So Pilate grants their request for now basically tripling down on the security measures that they're taking to protect the body of Jesus. And so now there's this huge stone that was rolled in front of the tomb. It was sealed with a wax seal that typically was stamped with the uh, Roman uh, emblem on it. And if you break that seal, then you're guilty of a crime that is punishable by death. And then the final measure was that guards were posted at the entrance to the tomb to ensure that there was no way that Jesus was getting out of there alive or dead. Right? So, however, I don't think that anybody could have predicted what was about to happen next. And so as we skip over to chapter 28, it says, At dawn on the first day of the week, which was the very first Easter morning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. And there was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. And the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. Well, a lot of good the guards were um, in this situation. And so it says that they were so afraid of the angel who was as translucent as you know, lightning that they were literally shaking in their boots. And so to the point that the angel doesn't even address them, they're not a worry. So the angel turns his attention to the women because the Bible says that the guards were like dead men. They couldn't speak, they couldn't move, they don't do anything. So ironically, now he carries on a conversation with the women and he says, don't be afraid. For I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. So 
if you can't believe an angel who's sitting there on this stone that's been rolled away from the tomb and seeing that the tomb is empty and knowing that this messenger from God is delivering this message, then who can you believe, right? But it's so unbelievable that the angel gets it and says, okay, I know it's a little hard to believe, so why don't you just come on in? Come on in and see for yourself, see with your own eyes, he is not here, he is risen. Do you have a hard time believing it? You've had to have questioned it at some point, haven't you? Like, is it, is it really true? Have you asked yourself secretly in your heart, like, what if it's not true? What if he really isn't risen? What if he really didn't conquer death? And death is just final. What then? I mean, I would have liked to have heard from the angel himself that Jesus was risen, wouldn't you? I would have liked to have taken him up on his invitation to walk into the tomb and see with my own eyes that Jesus was no longer there to satisfy my skepticism. But now, 2,000 years later, It even takes more strength of faith. And if we can find the belief that Jesus rose from the dead, that belief wakes up and stirs inside of us the spiritual side of our life. And our worldview gets bigger than just our three-dimensional box that we live in of that which we can see and hear and touch because all of a sudden your worldview becomes otherworldly when you realize that if Jesus really did raise from the dead then anything is possible all of a sudden there are no limits to what can be done well verse 11 goes on it says some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened and when the chief priests had met the elders, they devised a plan. Now notice that it says some of the guards go and make a report. I'm guessing, and I'm just guessing, that probably some of those guards hightailed it out of there, right? Either they were so afraid of the situation that, you know, Jesus rose from the dead and they were afraid that he was going to come back and annihilate them, or they were afraid of Pilate because they would eventually have to go back and give a report that it was on their watch that Jesus somehow escapes, right? So just some of the guards who decide they're going to go and they're going to give this report, and they decide that they're going to go not to Pontius Pilate, their boss. They go to the religious leaders to give this report. And maybe it's just a practice round to figure out like how this is all working out. And and now what you need to know is that who they go to are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they didn't get along at all. And they didn't like each other. And so when the Bible says that they came together in this moment, more than likely they came together in their official capacity as the Sanhedrin, which, uh, if you remember from a few weeks ago, was the, the, the leadership party uh, parties within um, uh, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes made up the, the Sanhedrin. It was much like our Senate is today. And so for them to come together and actually agree on something would be like, 
you know, today that our Republicans and Democrats would come together in great unity and, you know, throw their arms around each other and actually agree on something, right? It would be, it would be like a miracle. Well, that's exactly what was happening here. And this is a clear case of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And Jesus is the enemy. But here's the part that kills me. They aren't coming together and agreeing that they're wrong or trying to figure out what to do next from the standpoint of believing this story. I mean, they just heard this amazing story. And they are the religious leaders. They are supposedly leading people to believe in God. And they receive this report from these very, very credible men. Believe me, these guards have nothing to gain by walking into that room and telling the religious leaders that, you know, this crazy story of earthquakes and angels and Jesus raising from the dead is not in their best interest to even say that out loud. And if I'm a religious leader, I'm going, okay, maybe I was wrong. Maybe God's showing up. Maybe this whole thing is true. Let's go and see. Let's go and investigate because if this is true, this is exciting. This is like a game changer. Like God is doing incredible things here, but that's not what they decide to do. They don't do any of that. The first thing they try to do, their first instinct is to squash this thing. Their first instinct is to protect their rear ends. Because if this Christianity thing, as it will become known later, if this Christianity thing takes off, they lose control. But more importantly, they lose their, their, their base of power and support and wealth. All that comes to an end. They have a vested interest that this thing doesn't go any further than this room. There would be an uprising if everyone thought that the religious leaders had actually killed the Messiah, the promised one who was to come and actually had the only hope of saving Israel for thousands of years. Can you imagine the religious leaders putting the Messiah to death? So in an effort to protect their skins, they all come together and they devise a plan. And here's what they decide to do. In verse 12, it says, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say this. His disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we promise you, we will satisfy him and we will keep you out of trouble. You have to believe that the guards have been playing this scenario out in their heads for a while now, right? And they're imagining themselves standing before Governor Pilate and saying, well, Governor... We lost the body of Jesus, but it wasn't our fault. There was like this huge earthquake, and there was this angel that looked like lightning, and the stone rolled away, and before we knew it, boom, the body of Jesus was just gone. Yeah, right. You know exactly what Pilate does there, right? I mean, these guards become next in line to be killed for in dereliction of duty because there's no way he believes that story. The story is too preposterous for them to even tell anyone And so when the Sanhedrin comes back to them and says, we have a plan to save your rear end, they listen. They have their undivided attention. And now all of a sudden, this is crazy, now all of a sudden you have the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, and Roman guards, whose all their interests are suddenly aligned. Right? I mean, what strange bedfellows that all these people have the same 
common interest. And so here's the plan. First of all, we're going to give you a large sum of money so you and your families will be well taken care of. The guards are like, I'm in for that. That's a good plan. Right? Then he says, we're going to give you a more plausible story than the crazy one you just told us, which is this. Y'all fell asleep on the job, and the disciples were able to sneak in and steal the body of Jesus. Now, if you're the guard, you're going, okay, that's not much better, because that's still a punishable crime as a Roman soldier. If I fall asleep on my post, I could still be killed. But then the Sanhedrin takes it a step further, and they go, look, we're the ones who had Pilate put Jesus to death. We're the ones who asked for the guards to protect the body of Jesus. But we just want you to know this. We have your back. When it comes to Pilate finding out, we promise to protect you and to back up your story and to make sure that you will not get in any trouble. Now, considering the situation, it's a pretty sweet deal for the guards, isn't it? I mean, it's amazing. And so in verse 15, it says, this is a no-brainer. The soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed, and the story has been widely circulated among the Jews even to this very day. Crazy, isn't it? That these people just wanted to squash this incredible story of Jesus raising from the dead. What if their plan had worked? What would the world be like then if Jesus hadn't risen from the dead? Who knows, maybe Matthew would have still written a book about Jesus and it would be on my shelf right next to the book about Socrates. You go, okay, what was that about again? Well, thank God their plan didn't work. And most people did not believe the stories the soldiers who were there that day told about how the body of Jesus came up missing. I mean, can you imagine the soldier walking out and somebody saying, hey, we heard that the body of Jesus was gone. Like, you know, what happened? And the soldier going, well, you know, here's how it happened. And and, and so somebody goes, okay, so let me get this straight. There was this entire regiment of Roman guards who all fell asleep at the exact same time. And some fishermen from Galilee walk right through the middle of the military camp, break the Roman seal, roll back the boulder in front of the tomb, go in and grab the body of Jesus, run out with the body undetected and nobody sees them. All the while, all y'all are still asleep? And you're admitting this? Come on. It's easier to believe that Jesus raised from the dead, isn't it? Try as they may. They could not squash the truth because the truth was accepted by billions of people even yet today. That people have come to believe that Jesus really did raise from the dead. You see, believing in a resurrected Jesus, it it changes the way that we live. It changes the way that we see the world. Because if we believe that he's conquered death, then by default, we have to believe that there is a life after this life, when this one ends. And if we believe that, then by default, again, we have to believe that what we do in this world, how we then live, matters. How we spend our days 
and what we live for matters. And to be honest with you, there are sometimes this disconnect in my own life where while there may not be any question of my strong faith in the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, there's days when I simply don't live like it. There's days when I still act like he's still sitting in the tomb decomposing. If I could just live every day like Jesus is at my side, if I could just live every day like I'm living in the presence of the Almighty, how would my life be different? How would I do what I do differently? If our worldview is that we live in the presence of a resurrected Jesus, you can't help but have it change the way that you live. We can't help but let go of some of the things in this world that have such a a hold on us that we wouldn't otherwise let go of. Could it be that if we allow the truth about Jesus to penetrate every aspect of our lives, that it's just too scary to imagine all of the changes that would have to take place and how our life would be different every day. I'll tell you this. Easter makes Jesus downright dangerous. He's no longer the baby lying in a manger, helpless. He's no longer the man contained to a cross, gasping for his last breath. He's no longer dead, buried, and out of my way. Easter makes it all too real. Easter means you can't help but get the feeling like he's always watching. That he knows my deepest thoughts. That he knows the darkest part of my heart. But if we can find the strength to believe, Easter changes everything. It changes the way that we we see the world. It changes the way that we act at work. It changes the way we treat our husband or our wife. It changes what we teach our children about what's important and what's not in this life. It changes what we dream about and what we strive for, our purpose, our mission, what it is that we're living for. Everything changes. If we believe in a resurrected Jesus, it even changes the way that we pray. Because if we believe that Jesus can actually be raised from the dead, then there's really nothing that he can't do. And it opens up a whole new world of possibilities for us about what prayer can accomplish. When we fully understand that the Pharisees' plan failed for a reason, it failed because you can't stop the truth when it gets on up and walks right out the grave. We can finally then let the belief that we have in a resurrected Jesus that we've kept in our own little tomb inside of us locked away. We can finally open it up, roll away the stone inside of us, unleash that belief on our lives and see that there is no room for a limp-hearted faith on an Easter Sunday morning. It changes everything. Because we live knowledge that we are living every day in the presence of a Jesus who is very much alive and well. We know that he watches over us in everything that we do. The good and the bad. 
find the strength this morning to in your mind just walk inside that tomb and take a look for yourself and understand the three words that the angels spoke that day are true and it changes everything about how we now live because we believe 